you can follow me on Twitter and fucking debate me on the merits of, you know, superhero movies as cinema. Fucking bring it on, Martin Scorsese. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. You are you Keith Foster. You want to try that one again? <laughs> no, I got it. You are Keith Foster from San Diego, California. You had to think about it, I know. Uh, and you, being the person I'm talking to, Cassidy Robinson from Las Vegas, Nevada. Our and today intro we're going to needs work. <laughs> Well, it's because we used to be a different show, so there's always like a two-second delay in my brain where I have to correct it. It's like it's like what I would imagine being bilingual is like when you're uh, okay. Have yeah, to keep, make keep, a, a <laughs> keep quick translation in your brain before you say the thing out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's what that's what's happening there. But I edit all that out, so you actually don't even need to bring it up. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, uh, I never listen to what we talk about. This this is basically I know you just a two-hour fugue state for me every week. Absolutely. So in this, this fugue state, we're going to be talking about the uh, new Joker movie uh, by Todd Phillips. And at the end of the program, we are reviewing the, uh, I think it was a direct-to-Netflix film called uh, Creep. Uh, it came out in 2014. Uh, if you are listening to the episode right now, please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever the podcatcher you use, preferably iTunes, and give us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review, and Keith will draw you a personalized image and post it on yeah. to social media for you. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's been really fun. I've I've done a few of them so far, and it's a uh, it's good time, so... Um, you know, it's just sort of something sort of a, a fun, silly little reward for saying, you know, thanks for listening and helping us try to get better. I did want to bring up at the top of the show, though, before we get into our segments, um, there was a, a recent celebrity death that I thought would be significant to you, um, oh, specifically because it's in the world of comedy. And I know that this person is a very, very big influence on your style of comedy. Um, Do I? Hold on. Am I about to get a fucking bombshell dropped on me? I don't know (laughs) that I know who this is. (laughs) Legendary performance comedian, star of the Hollywood Squares, Rip Taylor died over the weekend. I mean, he was pretty old and... Yeah, he's been around. Oh, I mean, were he, you tra- uh, he, <laughs> he used to open for uh, Judy Garland back in the day. So that's that's how around he's been. I will forever uh, know him as the other genie from DuckTales. Uh, Treasures and- of the Lost Lamp. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and or uh, playing himself in Wayne's World, too. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, you joke that I was influenced by him. Um, I mean, that's definitely where you got the confetti thing. Yeah, you know, where you have that bucket of confetti that you always throw around when you're on stage. And you always make toupee jokes. Okay. All right. Some people might hear this and actually want to see me perform. (laughs) So let's stop this bit. Um, No, that is sad. Uh, I'm yeah, making light of it. He's actually, uh, you know, he's been around. He he was a guy. And uh, especially, I think. A good Rip Taylor impression if I, like, worked on it, but. I think a lot of people have a Rip Taylor impression. I, I, yeah, I probably he, I mean, could too, but I feel like no matter what you do, it would be offensive. That's true. I bet he'd think it's funny. <laughs> Unless you're doing specifically lines from Treasures of the Lost Lamp. I can't even um, think of any, and I'm not going to Google it. <laughs> <laughs> I have the DVD somewhere. Uh, I mean, it's a But yeah, I, I think most people of a certain age, let's say if you like a Gen X or something like that, probably remen- remember him from Hollywood Squares, because he was on that a lot. And if you YouTube it, you know, it's there. Um, and I think he had like some guest appearances later on in his life on like Will and Grace and stuff like that. Probably. So he's, he's been around for a while. Anyway, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, specifically just to talk about the phenomenon of Rip Taylor, because I don't think anyone, anyone of, a, of, our, of our generation or younger would, uh, would understand that like that kind of celebrity was a thing for a while. Also, this is both, both famous Rips died this year. Yeah, oh, Rip Torn. That one makes mm-hmm. me so sad. Yeah. I like. I just finished um, a couple years ago. I just finished watching uh, f- uh, the Larry Sanders show for the first time, and he was hands down my favorite character. His he is just brilliant in that. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he was a great character actor in general, anyway. But I I think that was probably his um yeah like his best. When I was younger, for no reason whatsoever, I mean, maybe they have a similarity. You let me, you tell me if you understand this. I used to confuse um, Rip Torn and Steven Root all the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people do that. I know, I'm pretty sure Ashley That's does a that. thing? Yeah, okay. it's, I think it's because they have a similar hairline. Yeah, and like the same kind of like uh, eyebrow and they're, they're acting. Were, and yeah, and they're both in everything. So it's like if right. Rip Torn wasn't in it, Steven Root probably was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's why. It's just like they're in the background of every good movie. Yes. Um, let's go ahead and get to the movie news. We haven't done this segment in a while, and some of these stories are a little bit old. Um, but I just wanted to throw these out there, um, let me just pull it up really fast on my phone. Okay, here's one. Betty Alvarez, director of the Evil Dead remake and Don't Breathe, uh, which is a movie I, I really enjoyed, um, is set to produce a Halloween-style Texas Chainsaw Massacre revival. I guess now we're calling them revivals instead of reboots. Um so I, I I guess what they mean by Halloween style is like what uh, David Gordon Green did recently with with the Halloween uh, yeah I, reboot that came out a couple years ago. I think you uh, with the success of 
this Halloween, uh, the the 2018 movie that you're talking about, mm-hmm. I think you're going to see a, a, a lot. I think we're going to go through sort of a third wave of the slasher movies. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I know that they did a Friday the 13th reboot in, like, 2009, like a decade ago. Um, right. And- well, about seven years, seven to ten years ago, a lot of those movies were getting remade. Exactly. But I think now, because I think Halloween has set another trend, just like they did when it fucking or- when the original came out in what the late seventies, early eighties. Anyway, when that came out, you know, it sort of kickstarted this whole slasher genre. Um, and I think we're going to see sort of a, a kickstart of, of just that, uh, uh, what do they call them? Not reboots, revisiting, revival, revival. I kind of like that. <laughs> um, yeah. So it does not surprise me at all that there's, they're working on a new Texas chainsaw. I think it's only a matter of time until we hear about a new Friday the 13th. Um, uh, I, I they did just try the new nightmare on Elm street with, uh, but you you're know, talking about you're talking about the one with Jackie Earl Haley that came out. That was a while ago, actually. Was it? Anyway, I yeah, that was like 2009. My point is, I was just <laughs> saying that I think with the success of this new Halloween movie, uh, I think we are going to see a lot more of the slasher movies being remade because I, I mean, with the exception of the original Texas Chainsaw, a lot of them were just sort of copying the formula of halloween i mean literally in the case of friday the 13th they were literally just like hey let's make this but change it a little bit (laughs) yeah we'll put it in the woods yeah yeah absolutely i mean it was the slasher movies were based on a formula um and uh, uh, you know texas chainsaw has always been kind of different from that because it the original predates the slasher movement. Certainly a huge antecedent to it. Um, yeah, but, but it, it, uh, it has in... this kind of its own, especially the second or the third act of the movie is really on its own trip. Um, and I, another reason they're calling this Halloween-like is because I think it's supposed to set right after the, the first one. So they're ignoring all of the other sequels and prequels and, and all of that stuff. But... There was actually a an uh Hall- or a Texas Chainsaw sequel that tried to do this uh not too long ago called I think it was just called Texas Chainsaw and then it was a 3D film and it was garbage. Well, it was I but real it, bad. So I um, think that's the other thing though with these revivals is um uh so David what was his name? David Gordon Green is that his name? Mhm. Uh, I think he came at it with a very, uh, he was very much trying to elevate the material. He, you know, he was trying to make it a sequel, um, ignoring all the others, but he also had sort of a, a, a vision with it. He had, he definitely had like a story he wanted to tell with it. Sure. I'm hoping that, you know, they're seeing that just because you, slap a number on it or say it's a sequel or say it's a reboot or say it's a revival or whatever that that's these franchises aren't they don't have the name 
recognition, not recognition, but they don't have the name bankability they used to have, right? Like, teenagers aren't going to just flock to see a new Texas Chainsaw because it's, it's the only thing in theaters. I think, you know, hopefully with the sort of renaissance of horror that we were talking about last week, they're realizing, like, okay... We, we have to at least put some money into it. We have to at least get, you know, somebody who wants to be involved. Um, we can't just do it cheaply. That's my hope. Um, yeah. Or at the very least, have an angle. Yeah. Exactly. When you're when you're going into these movies. Um, because a lot of them are just sort of, you know, let's update the special effects. Let's put an actor you might be familiar with or whatever. And well, then that- it ends up just being sort of nondescript and then they they come and go and nobody remembers them. That was I think that was the the 2009 formula. Right. Uh, I I'm hoping with the success of the new Halloween that they're realizing it takes more than that. Right. And I think the thing with Texas Chainsaw Massacre is every every time somebody goes to sequel it, it's even Toby Hooper who made Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which is admittedly fun in its own way, uh, in a very different way from the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, all of the Texas Chainsaw stuff that's come out since the 1974 film never really seemed to understand the appeal of the first movie or the specific type of horror that it was going for, mm-hmm. largely because it had never been done before and it, you know, sort of stumbled into a tone that was very uniquely its own. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's what I want to see again. If somebody can recreate that, like visceral terror of the first one and just like the fucked upness of it without just like going into Guru and gore, but like really going into the complete, uh, like, loss of humanity and the spiral into insanity. Yeah. If somebody can like tap into that, which is I think hard because it has a lot to do with the conditions that made that movie that movie, then I would be more interested. Uh and, I, I think But yeah, that- I don't want to see just like grainy yes, you know, uh filtered uh green gray movie with um, you know, some CW team getting chopped up. Totally. And and honestly, I think the only movie that has attempted to sort of remake Texas Chainsaw uh that I think has been successful isn't even a Texas Chainsaw movie. It's it's House of a Thousand Corpses, which sure. is is totally a spiritual successor and I think hits a lot of the same notes, maybe in a more cartoonish way. Um, yeah, there's some there's some Texas Chainsaw Massacre two happening in that one, as well as other Toby Hooper movies like Funhouse. But but I think that that has been the closest to a spiritual sequel uh, than than any of the other Texas Chainsaws, at least in my opinion. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's been some other like cannibal movies that I think kind of get around there too, sure. and maybe some of the ext- the European extreme horror. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's it's. We'll see. We'll see. I, I like Fede Alvarez. Um, I know he's just producing. Um, I'll have a lot more faith in what happens once we know who's directing. For sure. I, I think also, though, that this... I, I think that this movie is going to be the one to sort of make or break this trend. You know, if, sure. if just the 2018 Halloween remake is successful, cool, whatever. Uh, you know, they they 
had a good director. They had a good concept. They, like you said, they had an angle. Um, you know, if another sort of slasher movie can pull this off, then we might have a full blown movement come back. Um, if it doesn't sort of catch fire, I could see, you know, a lot of other franchises pulling the plug before uh, really giving it a solid go. All right. Uh, Jonah Hill is in early talks to star in The Batman, the new uh, uh, Batman reboot that's that's coming up. Um, as one of the villains, I'm not sure who. There's been talks about the Riddler. There's been talks about the Penguin. Thoughts? I'm not into it on name value alone. Uh-huh. Um, I do think Jonah Hill has more range than Superbad. Um but well, I would hope so. That was that's a over ten year old movie now. Yeah, but I I think he's kind of got typecast there for a while. Um, yeah, uh, and there, I think his stuff that breaks out of that mold is sort of few and far between as well. Um, I'm this is sort of a wait and see for me. Um, I'm I'm yeah. not like excited by the idea because I think there's a lot of maybe lesser known, lesser bankable character actors out there that could probably pull off these roles a little bit better. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, if Heath Ledger taught me anything, it's I'm not going to poo-poo it just because. Right. uh, Just because of who it is. You you know, if if the concept is there for the movie, it could be great. But, uh, you know, maybe this will be a breakout thing for Jonah Hill. I'm not stoked about it, though. Yeah, me either. Um, I think it is, it's, he's, <clears throat> Jonah Hill's just very Jonah Hill. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. if I, even when he's doing serious films or whatever, um, or he's, you know, involved in something like Wolf of Wall Street or, you know, Cyrus or something like that, but it shows a little bit more range than just like his, his Apatow shtick. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he still has that kind of nasally 12-year-old voice that he, I don't think he's ever going to grow out of. And I say that as somebody with a nasally 12-year-old voice. Um, and I don't... There's nothing about him that, like, seems truly menacing to me or mysterious. And, you know, that's a big part because he's um, he's all over the media. He's very accessible. He puts himself out there a lot. And... He's one of those guys, you, you know, you, you get what you see with him. Um, yeah. At and least. so I don't see, like, him, like, tapping into some weird dark thing uh, in a way that's super convincing to me. But, like you said, maybe we haven't seen all of his bags of tricks. Maybe there's something there. Yeah, I'm... And also, he's only in talks for the the role. Like he's not, you know. Yeah. N- nothing is set. set nothing set in stone. They've um, also been casting or banting about casting for a Catwoman too, and I, I know they're talking about like going with with a a black actress to kind of like mirror the Eartha Kit thing. And I think Tessa Thompson, among others, have been mentioned there. So you know, we're gonna get a lot of the Batman news before we get an official. Totally. Uh, cast set in and, place. And some of those cast lists, uh, I think uh, some of those names they've thrown out, you know, like Tessa Thompson, uh, for example, I, I think would be really uh, good choices. Uh, the mm-hmm. one that 
the rumor that most excited me is the um the British chick. She the the girl from uh Hobbs and Shaw. There was also oh. talks that, that she was like on the front of the list to to play it. And that's Yeah, I think that might have already like sailed yeah. left the rumor train. Maybe. Um she she was the one that I think sort of fits the traditional comic definition mm-hmm. of what Selena Kyle is, but you know, there is a precedence for Catwoman being black, uh, like you mentioned, Eartha Kitt. Um, you, you know, even in Batman Year One, she she was black. Uh, so, you know, fucking yeah, don't true. freak out about it. Internet. I'm, I'm not. I know. I <laughs> That was more to people who aren't listening to the podcast. The internet. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. So, I mean, we'll see, I guess. Um, last news story. Female-centric John Wick spinoff to be directed by Len Wiseman. Len Wiseman being the director of the Underworld movies. Say this one one more time. Female spinoff of the John Wick franchise to be directed by Len Wiseman of the Underworld movies. I mean, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of unknowns here. Um, yeah, sure. I I enjoy. I've only seen one of the John Wick movies. Uh, the Underworld. I have seen still. I still have not seen a single one. So I absolutely have no opinion here, other than to say I think Glenn Wiseman is kind of a hack, and uh, I don't expect great things from him. But yeah, I mean, I the first Underworld was cool, but even it had its problems um right sure i i i really think that this won't mean anything in a year like even if the movie comes out i doubt it will be too great fanfare i think one of the big selling points of john wick is uh keanu reeves i think he's john wick yeah i think he's one of the few actors who can still sell a movie on his name alone um, mm. I think you could test that, but yeah, uh, yeah. At least right now, he is having a moment. He's having um, a moment. But yeah, I I don't care. I don't care about this one way or the other. I see that. No. You- does this uh put a damper? I mean, you know, if this does come out to little fan service or you know does terribly in the box office, does this put a damper on the John Wick franchise? The John Wickiverse. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think so. I again, I think people are showing up to these movies to see Keanu do ridiculous action. Um, right. So I, I don't think it would matter one way or the other. I think this would be the Tokyo Drift of the John Wickiverse. Uh, like oh, maybe there's in, been a reassessment of Tokyo Drift now, yeah, but well, yeah. that's that's exactly what I mean. Is like I think it would come out. No one would give a shit. Maybe in three or four more John Wick years, if they tie right. it in, people might be like, hey, what happened to John uh, John Chick? That's what <laughs> I'll call it. Uh, <laughs> uh, or Chickwick. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I mean, sure, I it could be cool. I, I have no problem with anything you're talking about. I just, I don't care. I, I don't yeah, think most either. people would really care. I don't think there's anything... Uh, really to sink your teeth into. That's true. All right. So let's let's do what we came here to do. What we came yeah. here to do today. We're going to review 
Joker. Uh, the big release of uh, last weekend. And do you want me to set that up? Uh, sure. I don't care. Okay. So this takes place in a fictionalized 1981 uh, Gotham City. Is that um, official? We meet... Sorry? Is that official? Because I kind of felt like the the time period jumped around a little bit. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But it, I read somewhere it's supposed to be 1980 or 81 or something like that. Okay. Um, but anyway, so uh, stars Joaquin Phoenix as the lead, Arthur Fleck. Um, he's a lonely guy. He's kind of misunderstood. He is a professional clown. And he works for an agency that sends him to do birthdays. Sometimes he's a uh, sign spinner. And, uh, you know, he's kind of introverted and socially awkward. He doesn't know how to kind of get a, get by. Uh, people take advantage of that. He gets beat down in the street by teenagers and uh, when a coworker gives him a gun to, to protect himself, it ends up costing him his job, at which point uh, the social services that allow him to get his psych meds um, gets cut uh, by uh, Gotham funding, and he is then uh, left to his own devices. Um, he, he's taking care of his elderly mother, played by Francis Conroy, and um, he starts to slip into a state where his uh, darker fantasies and his uh, self-perception start to blur. Um, yeah, this is a character study, and uh, this is pretty much a big platform for Joaquin Phoenix to Joaquin Phoenix all over the place. <laughs> and... Uh, it's it's a different kind of comic book movie, you know, because it's a character we're all familiar with, obviously. Um, and but it's not it's not based on any uh, any specific storyline. It's not even mm-hmm. based on any specific interpretation of the character we've seen before. This is right. This is we like, see little bits and pieces. Like if you're a fan of the comics and you've been reading for a while, you'll notice there's some stuff that's borrowed from from the Killing Joke. There's a sequence at the end. Um, where he ends up on a talk show that uh, that is similar to something that was in uh, Dark Knight Returns, but mm-hmm. but yeah, the, you know, it basically this is its own thing. It's sort of an Elseworld story. People, comic book fans are familiar with that kind of terminology. Um, it's a standalone. It doesn't really have to connect to any previous or upcoming Batman projects, and I um, don't think it should. Personally, I. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think they, they left the door open for that. Uh, but I think that this is, you know, it it's meant to exist on its own so far uh, yeah. right now. But what did we think of Joker? Okay. And so- there's a thousand ways you can, you can talk about this movie because, I mean... <laughs> well, so that's the thing is... Yeah. Is I, I feel like... This movie has been so publicized and so polarized that I feel yeah. like this is one of those things that people feel like they either have to love or hate. And yep. I don't – I'm somewhere in between. Uh, I I think there's a, a, a lot of good stuff going on here. Uh, uh-huh. In general – 
I would say I liked it more than I disliked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I definitely think that Todd Phillips as a director gets in his own way a little bit. Uh, okay. And I think that he... Uh, it, this movie's frustrating to me because I think there's there are scenes of absolute fucking brilliance yeah. of, of just amazing stuff. And then... Uh, it's sort of, you know, got these really hack moments hanging on its coattails. So, uh, to me, I was a little back and forth with this, to be honest. Okay. I think Joaquin Phoenix is a fucking powerhouse, but I yeah. think that sometimes the camera loved him a little too much. And Are I you think- talking about all the close-ups, all of the, uh, like, real, all the push-ins and that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think it was, a like... Yes, obviously his performance deserves some intimacy. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think we do need that to an extent to understand the character. I think that sometimes it's borderline self-indulgent. I, like I said, I was kind of all over the place with this movie. Overall, I was positive. Um, mm-hmm. I did leave on a positive note. And there are certain aspects of this movie that I do have to discuss spoilers um so i i'll i'll get to those uh a little bit later though okay we'll open a spoiler zone uh when we get to that uh let's just kind of stay on generalizations so far um i i think i'm a little bit more positive on it than you are i think um you know i'll talk about todd phillips a little bit because he's kind of an interesting character um I think most people are familiar with him for doing comedies such as Old School and the Hangover Trilogy, uh, and uh, that's kind of been his thing for a long time. Mm. And I've never thought that his movies were that funny. Like, even when it was cool to like the first Hangover, and everyone was talking it up, and granted, I saw it a little bit later than everybody else, so there you're was already also, this, like... You're also sort of a notorious grump. Whatever. I, I saw it a little bit later. Um, so there was a lot of hype for it. And so when I saw it, I thought, okay, like, I I guess it's funny. I thought all, most of the, the big laughs were in the trailer. I didn't – I wasn't, like, immediately, like, bowled over by the audacity of, you know – Showing somebody with a prostitute or whatever the fuck. Like, all of the sh- supposedly shocking stuff I didn't think was that shocking or necessarily funny. And I thought that a lot of those movies kind of started this annoying trend for a while, which is luckily, I think, um, or thankfully, has sort of passed now. But for a while, there was just these outrage comedies where scenes weren't necessarily funny because they were funny, but just because a lot of mayhem was going on. Sure, yeah. Um, these kind of mayhem comedies. And I thought the hangover kind of started that to a certain extent. And that was a thing for about like four or five years. Um, I hated hangover too. And, uh, to date, I would say the funniest thing I've seen from Todd Phillips is, uh, probably the Starsky and Hutch movie. Oh, um, I didn't see that one. uh, I thought you did. I thought I saw that with you on TV, but anyway, but if you go back a little ways before Todd Phillips did that, he was a documentarian, and uh, his the first film he ever made 
was a small little like college project that he put together where he followed shock rocker Gigi Allen on his last tour when he was uh, let out of prison or was awaiting a court date or something like that. Um, and uh, kind of followed him on the last, you know, the last like few weeks of his life before uh, he ended up killing himself in a drug overdose. Um, and uh, Gigi Allen and this and the character of the Joker, as he's portrayed in this film, are not too dissimilar. Um, and you know, I, I think I tweeted actually, in some ways, the Joker is a more sympathetic character. Hmm. Uh, there's a, I think, a streak through Todd Phillips' work, even his comedy work, uh, a sort of mean streak, and a sort of like reveling in human indecency that that I think uh, finds a balance in this film that uh, that wasn't there since the Gigi Allen documentary. Like that's what that was all about was just watching this guy like you know, threaten people and diary on the stage and then, you know, eat it and whatever. Um, I think this film is a, is a career best for Phillips, which isn't to say that it always works because I do have problems with the movie, but I do think that there, there is an artistic consistency here that has, that isn't always in his work. And I think that there is a, you know, the sort of like, because he doesn't have that, that objective of comedy there anymore. He's allowed to let those meaner aspects sort of sit nakedly and, and objectively. Um, that's interesting to me. And that's one of the reasons why I thought yeah. his attachment to this project was interesting from the get go. And that, and that proved to kind of uh, play itself out. One of the things I'll give Todd Phillips as a director is I think he's always been interested in what his films look like. Um, Even the Hangover films are shot very, very well. And he likes to, you know, use film. And he does, you know, he pays a lot of attention to what's happening in the frame. And this movie looks really good. And it's very painterly. uh, And the cinematography is beautiful. And I I think the mise en scene for me works and i even you know all the like intimate close-ups and that kind of stuff and him kind of just like living in the frame with arthur fleck as he's going through this transformation i i think this would be even more heavy-handed if we weren't that close to him um i think you have to feel the transformation um personally or else it would feel more exploitive than than it does, which sometimes it does. Um, I, yeah, and I I don't disagree with you. I think what this movie does right is, uh, you know, a character study about someone with uh, mental illness and with a potential for violence. Um, yeah, in all of the right circumstances to to let that violence happen. Um, right. In, and in that aspect, I think the movie's really successful. And like I said, I think there are moments in this movie that are fucking brilliant. There are there are scenes that I will be thinking about for a long time in this movie. Um, 
Yeah, this isn't a movie you can walk out of and be like, meh, I don't know, it's what a... And, you know, just forget it the next day. Like, I, it, uh, some people might right now be saying that that's how they feel about it, but I, th- I, I have a hard time actually believing that because the movie is is so involving and it, it, it puts you in a pretty weird state through most of it. And I think effectively so. As a tone piece, which is what I think this mostly is, um, I think it's very, very effective. When it's not effective for me is actually more script um problems uh i think i'm i'm always way less interested when i'm reminded that this is in the batman universe totally i totally um, agree with you that that's there's my- there's a subplot that has to do with his mother uh and arkham asylum and all of this stuff that is like such a tangent red herring that like pulls me away from the character study that needed to hit the cutting room floor Okay, can we can we get to Spoilerville? Sure. You were about to enter the spoilers. Fast forward to the 53 minute and 30 second mark to listen to our final thoughts on Joker, as well as our Netflix review of Creep. So we are now uh, from this point to the end of this review, and I'll put a timestamp. Um, we are going to be discussing this film with spoilers. Okay. So this movie almost completely lost me. Uh, uh, <laughs> I I was for the most part enjoying this movie and and there with it until we got to the part where they kill the fucking Waynes. And I almost, like, my mouth drop open. I think I said, are you fucking kidding me? Really? They, they're they trying to use this for a fucking Batman origin? I got so upset. Uh, that, that scene, I think, mm-hmm. is probably the most filmed scene in all of cinema. It's yeah, insane. Yeah, the pearls and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... And also, it's the only scene, I think, in the entire movie that doesn't have Joaquin Phoenix in it and isn't in the Joker's point of view. Right. Uh, So, to me, it felt like sort of a DC Warner Brothers mandate. Like, you can do whatever the fuck you want, Todd Phillips, as long as we have, like, our our franchisability in here. And to me, it almost, this one scene, this one sequence almost completely ruined the movie for me. It's so frustrating. <laughs> and and honestly, the the so there's this side plot with uh where Arthur thinks is convinced by his mom that Thomas Wayne might be his father. I hate all that stuff. That's- to me that stuff felt very Gotham the TV show. Totally. Yes, exactly. Uh I didn't I don't mind it necessarily per se. But when we get scenes with Batman or with young Bruce Wayne and we get scenes with a young Alfred, I'm mm-hmm. I'm like okay. Like just the idea that you know, sure, Thomas Wayne is this figure in Gotham um yeah. in that you, you know, he may or may not be powerful enough and wealthy enough to bury someone like his mother or she may or may not be crazy. I liked how that was left 
kind of open to interpretation and open-ended and yeah and i didn't you, mind when thomas wayne as a figure was sort of in the background of the story exactly. like he we know he's running for mayor and that stuff and you know it's been mentioned a lot so we might as well just bear some repeating there's a ton of taxi driver in this movie there's a ton of scorsese's the king of comedy in this movie um yeah. and there is an analog there where you know there's the uh the Travis Bickle character who becomes obsessed with a politician and start to sort of, you know, have weird obsessions with him and it leads to his sort of out- violent outbursts. And exactly. yeah, that so- that is happening in this movie as well. But I actually but I thought to to personalize it so much that he may or may it's it's in question whether or not Thomas Wayne is his father. I was like, Ugh, I don't need this Greek tragedy bullshit. Yeah, yeah, and and once it was like, oh, she's crazy. I was like, okay, sure. I I was, yeah. I it went- resolves in a way that I was okay with. But then I thought, well, what was that all about? Like that just didn't need to be in the movie. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what's it all about? It's about setting up this fucking franchise. Scene. Yeah, yeah. And it, like I said, it almost completely ruined the movie for me. I also think, uh, since we're in the spoilerville. There are times when uh, the movie is overly obvious and telegraphs its punches. Um, So there's this this other side story with um, uh, Arthur making this friend played by Zazie Beetz and a neighbor. Yeah, yeah, she she's a neighbor and he like follows her and then they sort of become friends. And the whole time I'm thinking, oh, this isn't happening. This is all in his head. And I liked that. I liked that. I liked that. Uh, the whole movie is seen through uh, his perspective. You know, this, this unreliable narrator. Um, yeah. But the the movie does enough work early to let us know that there are that we're slipping into Arthur's fantasy at times. Right. That they then play it out where he like breaks into her apartment, and I thought that scene was really good. Uh, mm-hmm. And she gets all freaked out, but then it's almost ruined. It's it has its sort of feet cut out from under it when they do this like Fight Clubby flashback sequence. Yeah, it's like and all these scenes there. She wasn't really there. It's like duh, <laughs> exactly. And it's like yeah. I don't need you to hold my fucking hand through this movie. Yeah, uh, and I was so frustrated by those moments because. Uh, I I thought the character study was so good, and and yeah, Joaquin. And Fe- for the most part, I was so into the movie that these things stuck out like a sore thumb to me. Like the scene, uh, I, I want to talk about. There's there's a couple scenes in particular uh, that were so brilliant. The the initial subway scene, the the yeah. sort of inciting incident, um, was so well done. That was and, very well done. Yeah. And the scene where he he fully uh, embraces that he, his transition in a Joker um, and the, the former co-worker confronts him in his apartment. Yeah. Um, those those two scene. are very undeniably powerful scenes. Yeah. Um, and they, they those are just those are the scenes where. They just sort. I felt the direction sort of get out of the way of mm-hmm. the performance and, and uh, of the the character uh, arc that was going on. And they're just there. Like I said, there's these flashes of brilliance that I couldn't mm-hmm. 
justify uh, disliking the movie because I think right. for the most part there is more good than bad in this. Um, I agree, but the bad uh, to me is so hacky uh, that it's it's frustrating to to see. Well, I, I honestly I think that comes down to the fact that you know. It's kind of interesting that this movie came out around the same time that Martin Scorsese, the, the, the person who is largely responsible for the influences that created this film, mm-hmm. um, uh, got into some internet hot water for saying he doesn't believe Marvel movies um, are cinema. And I think there's an argument to be made there. I sometimes think that the Marvel movies are like big TV episodes. I think some are better than others, and I think sometimes that's not always the case. But um, I, 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 I don't, mm. especially from his perspective and the type of film that he grew up on, I, I can see why being, he would be totally alienated by Ant Man and Wasp. Sure, um, but I also think there's a bit of an uh, 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 ageism uh, and, and you know old grump thing going on here. Like, not all of his, he's a fucking. He, you know, he is one of the the best directors of all time. You know, he'll right. go down in history. Like, who are the two names that you come up with when you're thinking of amazing directors? It's Spielberg and Scorsese, right? Those are the two. Like, he he's so well known that he's and one of those great. guys still makes good movies. Uh, <laughs> I'm being a the, jerk, but anyway, yeah, I don't want to get into the whole argument on. of whether or not Marvel movies are cinema. But what I do, what I what I think is undeniable is that this is yes. Where but, where but I when I feel like it's sort of curtailed by its comic book nature. Though. Exactly, that's the thing. Is I think like there's there's sort of a little bit of a tug of war happening between you know, but I I don't think cinema that is... and franchise franchise movie land. But um, but to me the problem isn't the source material. To me the problem is, you know, W Warner Brothers and DC's fingerprints are all over those moments. It's it's and those are fucking movies problems. Those are production studio problems. That to me. Yeah. So so how are you fucking arguing that? You know, it's the comic books, it's the source material that that's the issue. No 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 no. I'm not saying that because it's a comic book film. Or that it's based on a comic book, that it would cease to be cinematic. What I mean to say is that, you know, when I when I think of the term cinema as opposed to just a movie or seeing, you know, whatever, um, is I'm thinking of it in terms of how are you emotionally involved in the story, or how does the movie pull you in, or those moments of film where something is happening visually and it is telling a story with visual in a way that only movies can do. Okay, um, and, and I think that ju- that just because the Marvel movies attempt to do that in a serialized format doesn't make them not cinema. Doesn't make them not cinematic. Yes, some of them are definitely better than others. <laughs> you can't have a cultural moment like we recently had with. In game and and Infinity War and uh, I don't even want to get into this because it's it's, it's, no, it's but it, not but even it, the point that I'm trying to make. I what I what I well, mean. Well, my to point s- is fuck you, Martin Scorsese, <laughs> you old grump ass bitch. 
just because the definition of cinema may be changing doesn't mean it's not cinematic. Doesn't mean it's not cinema. Anyway, rant over. Finish your point. The point that I'm making is that um, when the movie loses its way, and occasionally it does, and I don't think it does that much, actually. I think that there's a few moments that are there's a few moments that are regrettable, um, specifically when it comes to just getting a little too overplotted. Because I think this movie is not a movie about plot. So no. whenever the movie decides to go into plot instead of story, that's when the movie feels like it's um, losing focus. It also... Uh, yeah, exactly. It, it also feels like um, those scenes to, in the movie tend to, I think, be a little bit lazier. Um, like, uh, an example is uh, when he's getting his mom's file from Arkham Asylum, right? This has nothing to do yeah. with with the, the Waynes being murdered. This has nothing to do with... Um, the franchisevity of it, but this is all just like plot moving. Yeah, uh, uh, this seems pretty boring, and mm-hmm. it also, uh, you know, like the clerk just like takes the mom's file out and reads it in front of him, and it's like, okay, that's not even remotely believable. Uh-huh. Uh, y- you know, HIPAA laws exist even in <laughs> alternate history Gotham. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when you're striving so hard for realism, to just lazily have a character blurt out exposition like that is it's, yeah is lazy. It's it's not in in unneeded. You know, we I didn't even need the scene where he gets the file or whatever. Like it's just meant to further momentum. And like you said, the the this movie's not about the plot. There no. isn't. Uh, giant space beam they have to stop there isn't a you know um anything yeah, there like isn't that. a villain because he is the villain <laughs> exactly yeah i mean there is some like thematic stuff happening in the background that i think is very very interesting and i think that the people you know the, the movie is getting a lot of different kinds of criticism one of which i've heard is that it's empty and it's not about anything i think this movie is about quite a lot um you know, there, there's oh, these, yeah. these riots that are happening in the background, and like these like uh, crimes that are inspired by, inspired by the the Joker. Um, that uh, very much echo both ki- kind of a weird combination, uh, Occupy Wall Street and MAGA rallies, and yeah, uh, yeah, and I think in a way that's that feels more believable than. Um, sort of like the class riots that you see in a movie like V for Vendetta, which is sort of... Right, this or The hyper- Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, which are these sort of hyper-stylized, mm-hmm. uh, very organized sort of fake movements. Um, yeah, and this, this feels like- much more like a, a kind of chaos. And yeah. I think, you know, the final sequences of the movie when we're seeing all of these people in the clown masks and, and yeah, that might be kind of like obvious iconography but you know everything that's sort of surrounding this movie the controversy todd phillips's comments about woke culture uh you know whether or not this movie is uh is is in going to incite violence or incel uh death manifestos and all of this stuff the media reaching for a story and it's i'm so sick of it this movie's not evil uh right (laughs) well i think it's been so long 
that a, a mainstream movie's been allowed to like you know be R-rated and you know go into uncomfortable territory that people just aren't used to it anymore. That's why both this and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood were like shredded for daring to exist. Um, but I think all of this stuff that sort of surrounds it, and then also what's happening in the film, is all very of the time. And I think one of the things I like about it, in a, in a kind of um, much less much less uh, hyperactive uh, and much less drug-induced, but I think the, the movie kind of reminds me uh, a lot of like when Natural Born Killers came out. It's like, mm. say what you will about that movie. You can love it. You can hate it. It's one of those movies, but it's very of its time. And it, it, this is a zeitgeist film in that way. And I think the, the sort of anger and the energy of the movie and the sort of unresolved anger and the sort of aimless anger of the movie that has to, you know, this sort of uh, unresolved anger at society at, at large, our governmental systems, our, you know, funding of mental health, all of these things is reflected in the film in a way that I think is actually pretty intelligent and maybe not all the time intentionally so, but uh, I was kind of struck by that. Yeah, and I, I agree with all of that. Uh, like I said, overall, I liked this movie more than I didn't. Um, mm -hmm. It just, it was sort of frustrating me because as it is, I think it's a pretty good movie, but I think mm -hmm. it could have been great. I think it's flawed, but great. <laughs> like, right. uh, and, and sometimes... Well, let's, let's put Sometimes a messy mouthers. movie is more interesting than... Than like a perfect execution, uh, sure. Yeah, and this is definitely a messy movie, and some and and in a messy in a lot of different ways. So let's uh, let's put our money where our mouth is, and let's let's letter grade it. For me, I'm gonna say uh, B plus. That's what I gave it to. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, I guess we. Can Agree. The podcast. We're, we're there. <laughs> we're done. We, we've reached consensus. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I recommend the movie. Go see it or don't. But if you're not going to see it, don't act like you're being brave because you're not seeing the movie. That's fucking annoying. Yeah. Yeah. I, again, this movie isn't evil. Movies aren't evil. It's just like, just whatever. It's, you know, yeah. it's just it, at the end of the day, it's a movie. <laughs> yeah um you know i per personally this isn't even my favorite interpretation of the joker me um, either and I, I was gonna save that at the beginning and forgot to to mention that but i i have never really ki like killing joke is like this you know largely celebrated alan moore comic and i think it's very well written i like reading it but that's not my joker no, I, I like i, I don't I like the idea of like the failed comedian who was put upon and then and then you know uh, eventually takes on the mantle. I actually think some of that stuff is handled better here because there is a implied insanity there from the beginning. Um, mm. Yeah, and and uh, exactly, and it's it's not as on the nose as as a lot of Joker origin stories tend to be. And you know, yeah. even like some some aspects of his uh, quote unquote origin were still vague. Like, is he adopted? What's his actual real name? You know, like I, I right. can appreciate that, like. They, there is Joker mythos in there. Yeah. Um, I've even but, heard you know, some it, people say, 
and I, this is sort of what I've decided for my own headcanon, is mm. that Arthur Fleck is not the Joker that Batman eventually fights, because in this movie, he would be like a good 30 years older <laughs> than, oh, I, than Batman. Sure. But that this that this person would later inspire, I guess, the Jack I, Napier character, whoever falls into the vat of acid. Honestly, I don't even need to headcanonize it, because I, I think... It, I think that does a disservice to it. I think this movie is best when it just seen on its own. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think it has to do with the Batman universe, yeah, writ large at all. Um, you know, it, it's a standalone. As, yeah, and as far as uh, you know, the cinematic antithesis of Batman goes, I. I still don't think we've seen better than uh, Heath Ledger's performance. I, no, I th- and, I, and I think as far as, uh, yeah, the juxtaposition with Batman on screen, that is hard to beat. Jack Nicholson is really good, too. This is a character that um, keeps on giving, unless you're yeah, it, Jared Leto. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, I like that this is a different interpretation. I like that we haven't mm-hmm. seen this side of the Joker before. This is definitely... Uh, a more sensitive Joker, like even even yeah. when he fully embraces the chaos, there's still he still has a sensitivity about it th- that I think is again what makes it to where it doesn't define it as sort of my you know my interpretation, my personal favorite interpretation of the Joker. But uh, but the performance is so good, yeah, you know that that I didn't need it to be. A reflection of Ledger. I didn't need it to. Yeah, be. I was just interested to see where it would go. Exactly. I I actually think this movie is probably better for for just trying to create the character on its own terms. Yeah, um, I, I think that works to the movie's advantage. Okay, we've we've talked about we've, this a lot. We've figured it out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right. Um, let's go ahead and talk about Creep. This will be our Netflix homework. Um, Keith, describe to me what happens in Creep. So uh, Creep is about a, a videographer uh, gets hired uh, to track this guy for a day um, uh, under the pretense that he's he's making a video uh, for his unborn son. Uh, he tells him, you know, he, he has a brain tumor, it's inoperable, so he wants to have this videographer just follow him around for the day uh, and capture his personality for, for this unborn son. Um, yeah. You, you know, as the movie pans out, uh, as it continues, um, you start to think that there might be more to this uh, story that that maybe uh, it's not entirely truthful um, mm-hmm. and yeah. And it's a, it's a f- sort of a found footage um, unedited sort of documentary style movie mm-hmm. uh, from the, yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't know how much I can say beyond that without getting too spoilery. Um, right. Suffice to say that one of these characters may or may not be the titular creep. Yes, <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, it's a two-man it's a two-man piece. You have the um, the videographer who's played by the movie's director Patrick B- Bryce, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the subject of his his documentary is uh, Joseph, played by Mark Duplass. Yes, and this was done by uh, Bloomhouse's like 
uh, boutique division. They do they do a lot of like direct to Netflix or do a lot of like um, direct to DVD or whatever. Like they're smaller projects, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Or at the very yeah. least, it was acquired by them and released that way. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, I, again, I feel like we might have to get into some spoilery territory for this one. Maybe because um, it it's kind of a shorter movie. Um, yeah, it's a, it's uh, less than ninety minutes. Yeah, and and the twists and turns kind of you, you almost immediately you realize that this is sort of an uncomfortable situation, um, right? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, like immediately upon meeting Joseph, he has sort of an off-putting sense of humor. Um, mm-hmm. He he is immediately like. One of the first things he asks the videographer to do is like come and uh, watch him bathe, which yeah, he which is pretty weird. Assumes feels, a lot of familiarity right away. Yeah, and this this uh, yeah, like the first thing he does is wants to hug him. Um, yeah. So, uh, and the the character of Joseph, you pretty quickly get the idea that he's just sort of making things up as he goes. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, yeah, and it it gets really uncomfortable really quick. Uh, this is this is sort of the horror equivalent of cringe comedy. <laughs> um, <laughs> like you you know you watch those movies or TV shows, sort of like the first season of Office, Office where uh, yeah. a character says something that you're just like, ooh, that's so uncomfortable. But in this case, it's played for horror, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> instead of uh, sometimes for laughs. Um, yeah, there's actually a lot of like uh, dark humor in the movie. Yeah, um, but basically, aside from a few sort of plot contrivances, mm-hmm. um, there are a few moments uh, where Aaron is put in these situations where I'm like, okay, you wouldn't just like go to the cops at this point or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it borders on taking me out of the movie um but you know for the most part this is a pretty lean mean uh another intimate character study of a sociopath yeah Um, that's weird (laughs) yeah these movies sort of sync up in that way but uh joseph's character is is much more malicious um, whereas, you know, in contrast to the Joker, you sort of get this feeling of, uh, he doesn't maybe quite know what he's doing. Uh, in this case, it becomes pretty clear pretty quick that Joseph knows exactly what he's doing. Right. Um, and, and, you know, okay, now we'll get in the spoiler territory. The second half of the movie is just sort of him fucking with this guy, uh, yeah. yeah, and for me personally, I I I was taken a little back by that transition. Yes, um, that's what I mean when I talk about the plot contrivances. Like, there's sort yeah. of a rough transition from from the first to the second half because the first half awkward. Yeah, you're yeah. led to believe that it's going to be basically him with this guy for the whole movie, and it's going to be like this watching this uh, this documentary experience kind of just like go darker and darker and crazier and crazier and in some ways I kind of wish that had been the way the movie had gone 
I think there's interesting stuff in the second half, and I like the way it sort of wraps up. But mm-hmm. yeah, it definitely feels a little disjointed. Um, Espe- when we- especially in the middle, there's there's a chunk yeah. of like, wait, what am I watching? Now? There's some um, connective tissue that's missing, or it's just like it's just a, a kind of a sharp like, oh, we're doing it this way now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but if you're on board with that, this mm-hmm. movie is creepy and yeah, dark, definitely unsettling, and weird. And I sort of loved it. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I think a lot of that is carried on the weight of Mark Duplass's performance because sure. it is so believable. And and as an you know a not hugely successful actor slash comedian, like I have Ooh. done enough weird gigs that I'm like, uh, I hope this is not not going to be this Go exact situation. Yeah, uh, yeah. So. Is very so that's sort of the, Yeah, that's sort of the fear that it's preying on. Is this is we? I think we've all been in situations where you're with someone you don't know that well, and they're sort of taking advantage of of your politeness, and mm-hmm. you're looking for an out. You're like, okay, I, I, you know, this is getting sort of uncomfortable. I just sort of want to leave now, but I don't want to like hurt the person's feelings. Yeah. So there's a lot of that sort of tension for a long time. And and I think that's where the movie has a hard time of making that transition of cuz uh, eventually okay. it has to like yeah, it has yeah. to like go there. Like what is it exactly that crosses that line from awkward encounter to oh, I'm in, legitimately in a dangerous situation. I'm I'm fearful for my life. Um Yeah. But with with just a couple bumps, I think in the road, I think the overall package for me was really effective. Um, and like you said, I like how it sort of wraps up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, honestly, my biggest complaint about this movie is it has a tendency to do these sort of annoying, dumb jump scares uh, <laughs> because the the character is, you know, like I said, he he pushes buttons. Yeah. So he has this tendency to just sort of like try to scare the cameraman. And to me, those scares feel a little bit cheap in comparison to the character horror that's that's underneath. And to me, that's where the, the meat is, the the juice yeah. of this movie. But in a way, I think that the, they're, I mean, they're literal jump, jump scares. It's not even like trying to hide what they are. <laughs> like, no, I think, yeah. I think he, it's almost like, I don't know if it's a necessarily a commentary about the filmmaker of like the cheapness of those type of scares, but that's definitely how it came off. Like I, I didn't think of it as like, oh, they had to fit in a couple boo scares. I think it's like literally the characters popping out and saying boo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, so and it's like a meta boo scare. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something. Yeah. I liked this movie so much that I immediately watched the sequel. Oh, okay. Uh, and and I think if you liked this movie, you would like the sequel because it is sort of a it, 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 you're you're already familiar with this character. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you already know what's going on. Um, and I think they take it to a really interesting place. 
Uh, and the sort my sort of hangups with the first movie are explained pretty quickly in the sequel. And I don't think the sequel has that sort of baggage. And I think that Creep 2 plays with that tension a lot better of, is this character in a really dangerous situation or not? Okay. Uh, which, which, you know, is... Because when I was watching wondering. this, I was wondering, how could there be a sequel? Because so, uh, so much of the tension is it relies on, is this guy crazy or not? Yeah. And I think, I think the sequel kind of pulls it off better because the first one, yeah, is exactly that. But the second one sort of plays with a different tension, okay. um, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, and again, uh, as Mark Duplass as um, the same character, and he, you know, he's playing it to perfection in, in both movies. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's sort of a shame how small these movies are, because I think his performance is so fucking good um, mm-hmm. that it, you know, it deserves some kind of attention. Yeah, and you get a sense at least in the first one, I can't speak for the second one, but you get a sense that there's a lot of improvisation going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, especially these scenes of him kind of following him around in the woods and he's trying to explain things or he's coming up with stuff, you know, like the the, the peach fuzz mask and all of that stuff. You, I kind of got a vibe like, sort of like in the, the Mumblecore films that the Duplass brothers used to make, um, that they would have an outline of where the story is going, but when they hit play on the camera, the actors really kind of got to like get from point A to point B in the scene, however they wanted to. I think the second one is a little more written out mm-hmm. um, because there's a very specific type of tension that they are playing with. Um, yeah. But I, I think it's largely similar in that aspect. Like, uh, and, and I think it works to the benefit because you feel like this character, Joseph, is is just sort of, you know, lying at every turn or just sort of like you feel like the character is improvising is is like, yeah, trying, yeah, it kind of like it works in that way because you you as an audience member and we're directly put in the eye line of the of the of the protagonist because he's behind the camera. Um, we feel like we're trying to feel this character out the same way that the main character is. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So I, if you're into, I know sometimes the sort of found footage thing can be off putting for people. I think this is a little bit better than most because it's, it's done from the perspective of an amateur filmmaker. So yeah. it's, you don't get as much shaky cam just for the sake of low budget. Um, yeah. It, it feels like even though it is, uh, you know, the sort of found footage style, it definitely feels like there is an attention to what the camera is seeing in a way that I feel like found footage movies don't always have. Um, mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, maybe give it a chance if you're on the fence with that type of movie, um, because I don't think this is as obnoxious as as some found footage can be. And yeah, it, 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 yeah, I think that it um, there's a justification for it, and on a story sense that that helps it 
feel a little bit more natural than sometimes you see these things and it's like, well, why would the camera be there? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. or why would these edits exist? Who's editing this footage? And it's, uh, you know, there's, there's a, there's a little bit questions. of that, but not, not nearly as much as I've seen in others. And they, even that they kind of explain at the end. Yeah. Uh, so even those, I would say, you know, hang in there because it does make sense at the end. Um, and and I think again the second one is even sort of better as far as as that goes. Mm-hmm. I, I think they knew like they had sort of pulled this type of movie off once, and so they sort of knew going into it what they wanted to do, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know it's a little bit more ambitious than the first one too. So yeah, and Mark Duplass as an actor, I feel is not like people don't give him that much credit or as much credit as I think he deserves. Cause I think a lot of times when we see him on screen, he's just sort of an everyman. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but he, he can like this movie. And I think, um, uh, uh, what was the one safety? Not guaranteed. He can yeah. get into character work in a way that's really, really, really good. Uh, so I, if you're in a horror, if you're into this type of thing, yeah, uh, I would say, check it out for sure. All right, and what do you have as our Netflix homework next week? Uh, so next week, uh, we're going to watch the Netflix original that just dropped. Uh, it's based on a Stephen King and Joe Hill uh, father and son collaboration called In the Tall Grass. Mm-hmm. Just dropped. Just yeah. dropped. This is hot off the uh, Netflix presses, as it were. Um, all right. And if anybody has anything they want to say about anything we talked about in this episode, you can email us at uh, mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on social media at mcguffinpod on Twitter and Instagram and facebook.com slash mcguffinpod where we post all of our episodes and the news stories that we talk about as well as sometimes we like to pose uh, survey questions for our listeners to answer. Fun things like that. And uh, if you want to read my reviews that I do um, bi-weekly over at the Idaho State Journal, um, you can at idahostatejournal.com slash whatever it is, the arts and entertainment uh, area of the website. And you can also uh, read some writing I've done for the MacGuffins website at mcguff.in slash author slash Cassidy, where you will also see the RSS feed for this podcast. And while you're there, check out the other articles uh, by the MacGuffin staff. Um, Keith, what are your things? Uh, yeah, you can uh, follow me on Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. That's where I'm posting these pictures. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, and fucking debate me on the merits of, uh, you know, superhero movies as cinema. Fucking bring it on, Martin Scorsese. <laughs> And uh, you can also visit my website, www.keithfosterkid.com. And that's all for now. All right, cool. Uh, Be sure to check out Patrick and Dennis over at the podcast, Almost Educational, and Buddy and Alice over at Those Happy Places, and Rogue Fun Star Wars Podcast, and Mike Fallick over at Hack Thought. Um, And I believe that is it for the week. Is it just me, or... Is it getting crazier out there? Bye.